preacher this morning. He's someone who's known to the congregation, uh, Pastor Rich Chamberlain. He's one of our missionaries. He's working in the Plymouth House of Corrections. And he also was on the pastoral staff at South Shore Baptist from 1993 to 2007. So, Pastor Rich, will you come and uh, bring us the word of God today? Thank you, Seth. It is great to be back at South Shore Baptist Church. It's wonderful. It is really, really wonderful to see lots of familiar faces and also to see lots of unfamiliar faces. Now, I have a little dilemma, and that is my memory's not so good. So there'll be some unfamiliar faces that I'm supposed to know, and there'll be some who are new. So if you're new, if you've never seen my face before and you don't know me at all, could you just give me a little signal so that I won't pretend to know you? Thanks. That'll help me out a little bit. Hey, when oh, send the kids to children's church. At this time, I get to be really popular with the children. It's time to send you guys off to children's church. So if you're a child, you are released from your sentence. I'm a chaplain. I couldn't help it. As they go, let me say that uh, when Jeremy asked me a while ago if I would preach this morning... I was thrilled, and I told him that I would, and I'm giving you the same promise. I will preach this morning, but before I preach, I want to take just a few minutes to tell you a little bit about my ministry as a chaplain. I serve at Plymouth County Correctional as a chaplain. I'm Danny Cross's assistant, and at uh, at the jail, there are a number of different populations that we have a ministry with. First and foremost, certainly are the inmates. There's currently around 11, between 1,100 and 1,200 inmates. We've had as many as 1,600. They're made up of uh, different categories. We have inmates who are sentenced county inmates, and most of them are doing less than two and a half years for nonviolent crimes. So that's one population. Another population are those who are trial inmates or awaiting trial. And they can be federal, state, or county, and they can be looking at anything. Aggravated assault, rape, murder, arson, multiple homicide, you name it, uh, they can be charged with it, and they're awaiting their trials. And then we have a third population that has been growing steadily. Uh, They're on loan from the federal government. They are immigration detainees, um, ICE. And we have a few hundred of those right now from all different countries. So I don't have to leave the states, and I can have ministry with, uh, with folks from about 27 different countries uh, as far as there's probably more than those countries represented, but that have actually attended and participated with our ministry. And there's one fourth uh, population, which is very, very small. There's only 10 of them or 11 at the most at any one given time, but they're dear to my heart. And those are juvenile offenders. The absolute worst juvenile offenders in the whole state of Massachusetts end up at Plymouth County Correctional in one unit. It's kind of the Alcatraz for juvenile uh, in our state. And I get to have a Bible study uh, with those kids once a week. So those are the inmates. But in addition to the inmates, that's not our only ministry. There are also social workers, medical personnel, and teachers who work in the jail. And we try to have a ministry with the support staff as well. And we must not forget the corrections officers. They don't like to be called guards. They're corrections officers. And um, I kid around with them. I say, you know, the day you guys decide to not come to work is the day I don't go to work. Uh, But quite seriously, uh, they're very essential, 
And uh, a number of them have personal faith in Jesus Christ. So we try to have a ministry with the corrections officers as well. There's one uh, final person who is at the jail that uh, if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have any ministry at all. And that would be God. God is certainly all present. He's everywhere. He's at Plymouth County Correctional. Well, if I were to go to uh, the inmates and I were to ask them, out of these four groups of people who are in the jail, rate them in proximity, their closeness to God. My guess is the inmates would rate them like this. For better or for worse, Chaplain Dan and I would be the closest. And then the social workers and the medical staff and the support personnel. And then themselves. And then at the end, they would probably put the corrections officers. If I were to go to the corrections officers, this would be a little bit different. I can guarantee you that the corrections officers would have it this way. One of the, uh, the biggest thrills uh, for me at Plymouth County Correctional is I get to tell these guys that if they are aware of their sinfulness, if they are aware of how badly they've messed it up, if they know how horrible the decisions they've made in their life are and how many people they've hurt, including themselves, and if they're sorrowful for that and truly repentant, that they aren't over there. In fact, they most likely are right here. They're the closest ones to the kingdom of God. And you say, wait a minute, well, why do you say that? I say that because Jesus told this parable about two guys. Two guys who went up to the temple. A Pharisee, and hopefully behind here there'll be a tax collector. Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee went out into the temple and he went in boldly and he told God, Thank you, God, that I'm a righteous dude. I'm not like other people. And the tax collector, he wouldn't even look up at God. He beat his chest and he said, Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. At the end of the parable, Jesus tells this wild, this wild thing, this astounding truth. He says that it's the tax collector who went home justified, not the Pharisee. And it's really a great privilege and a thrill to tell the inmates the truth of this, of this parable of Jesus. That it isn't one's righteousness that gets them justified with God. In a minute, we're going to go to God's Word, but before we go to God's Word, will you join me in prayer? Father God, what a great privilege to stand before these folks and to open your Word, but with the privilege comes the responsibility. I thank you for the time I've had to prepare, uh, to prayerfully think about this text and to study. But Lord, I pray they wouldn't uh, rely on preparation. We need this to be a supernatural, spiritual thing this next half an hour. So, Lord, we need you to be present. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would help me to think only thoughts that are true of you and communicate them in a way that are clear. I pray for the folks who are listening, that you would keep them awake and alert and attentive to your word, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable them to receive what truth you would have them get this morning from you, not from me. Lord, forgive me for my pride. Get me out of the way here that folks might hear from you. And all to your glory, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. 
Amen. If you brought an NIV Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 18. If you didn't bring an NIV Bible with you this morning, I ask you to take a pew Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Because what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to read in unison six verses, six verses I'm going to preach on this morning. And I think it would be helpful if we were all reading them from the same translation. So it's not that the NIV is any better. You can go back to your other Bible in a second after we read together in unison. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's on page 1038 in the Pew Bibles, if you, if you uh, are using a Pew Bible. And when you found it, if you look up, I'll know when to start. I think we all have it. All right, so let's read together verses 9 through 14. Together we read, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thank you for your assistance. I'm going to actually ask for continued assistance throughout this sermon. I want this to be responsive. Anytime this morning when I say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and I'm going to point to you, I want you to respond with, he who humbles himself will be exalted. That way you'll have to pay attention because you don't know when your line's coming. Let's practice this a couple of times. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and... That was pretty good. I think we'll try it one more time. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and... That was great. Thank you. Use all the help I can get. All right. Well, I want to look at this uh, passage one verse at a time here. So let's go to verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. One of the reasons I love this parable is because not every parable that Jesus told do we get why he told it and to whom he told it. And at the end, he even gives us the meaning of the parable. Lots of times Jesus told, told parables. We didn't know why he was telling it or exactly what he was meaning by it. But here we get both why he's telling it, who he's speaking to, and then at the end, the meaning of it. So, who's he talking to? People who are confident of their own righteousness. Not only were they confident of their own righteousness, but they looked down their noses at everybody else, those who weren't so righteous. All right, so in verse 10, we start the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and one a tax collector. What do we know about the Pharisees? 
Well, the Pharisees were religious lay people in Jesus' day. They weren't professional clergy. They weren't paid to be good. But they were really, 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 really law-abiding citizens. Super righteous. They knew the law of Moses cold. And they obeyed it with all of their strength and all of their effort. They actually came up with extra rules and regulations to be able to keep the law of Moses. Not only were they zealous about keeping the law, and they were. I mean, they wouldn't jaywalk. They would drive the speed limit. They followed the law to the letter as best they could. But not only did they follow it for themselves, they wanted everybody else to be like them and and do likewise, follow the law. So those were the Pharisees. What do we know about tax collectors? Well, I don't know. Anybody here enjoy writing their check on April 15th to the government? I don't think we particularly like tax collectors today. But in Jesus' day, the Romans had conquered Israel. And the Jewish people had to pull out their checkbooks and write their checks to Caesar, to Rome. I hate paying taxes. But at least I'm paying taxes to my own country. I'm not paying taxes to the enemy. What if we were a conquered nation? And I had to write my checks to a bunch of enemies. I won't pick any. I was tempted to, but I won't go there. But not only did the tax collectors collect the money from the Jewish people and give it to the Romans. The Romans were smart. They hired Jewish people to collect the taxes from their own people. So the tax collector would go to his own people and collect money to give to the enemy. But it gets worse. They would be in a certain district, and Rome would say, you need to raise this much in tax revenue. Anything you raise above that level, you get to keep. So the tax collector would squeeze as much and extort as much money out of his taxpayers as he could to make what he needed to give to Rome and then to live a lavish lifestyle with what's left over. The tax collector lived in the, uh, you know, the house with the three camel garage. I mean, they were wealthy, but they were crooked. Not only were they crooked, but they were stealing from their own people. The money that they should take was bad enough they were giving it to the enemy, but they were taking more than they should take and keeping it for themselves. I think it's safe to use this analogy, although the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm taking a little risk here. But I would equate the tax collectors in Jesus' day, as far as they were viewed by the people of the day, uh, they would be like the pedophiles at the jail. At the jail, there's a hierarchy, even within the inmates, or a lowerarchy, if I say so. And at the bottom of that lowerarchy are the child molesters. They're despised. They're the most despised inmates. Even the other inmates despise them. The tax collector, I believe, would be on par with the pedophile. Most despised. And it's why Jesus picks the contrast here. To make it as sharp a contrast as possible, I believe. All right, so those are our two participants. Let's see what they do. They act a little differently, don't they? Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Well, before we trash the Pharisee, which we will in a moment, 
I want us to see, first of all, where did he go? He went to the temple where God is present. He went to worship. And what did he do when he got there? He prayed. These are good things. It's good to go to the Lord's house and it's good to pray. And what did he pray? He thanked God for his righteousness. Read it. It says, God, I thank you. That's where he starts his prayer. It's a good thing to thank God for our righteousness. In fact, is it a bad thing to be righteous? Of course not. God wants us to be righteous. Is it a bad thing that he's not a robber? That he's honest and moral in his business dealings? That's a good thing. Is it a bad thing that he's not an adulterer, that he's faithful to his wife? No, that's a good thing. Is it a bad thing that he fasts twice a week? His religion required fasting occasionally in high holy days like Yom Kippur. So to fast twice a week was to go beyond the requirements of its religion. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. What else did he do? He gave a tenth of all that he, all that he got, everything that he got. He gave a tenth back uh, to, the, to the temple. Tithing, man, that's a good thing. I'm a pastor. Tithing's a really good thing. Giving a tenth of your income back to the church, to God, praise God. That's really good. He was a really good guy as far as the moral choices he made in his life. But what's his fatal character flaw here? He's not content to just thank God for his righteousness. He has to compare himself and say, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. See, I think the problem here isn't even so much self-righteousness, although there's maybe some of that. The problem, I believe, here is spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. The Pharisee was a righteous guy, and he was living a righteous life. But he was getting proud about that. Well, let's look at the response in comparison of the tax collector. Quite a contrast. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He was reluctant to even go fully into the temple. Talk about humility. He didn't even look up to heaven. With his eyes down, inverted, and beating his chest. What's his simple prayer? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This tax collector knew that he was the lowest of the lows. He knew he was ripping his own people off. He knew he was hated and despised. He knew he was immoral. He knew he was making bad choices. He knew he didn't even deserve to be in the temple in God's presence. He came in fearful and reluctant to even go there. And he cries out for mercy. And we get to verse 14, and we've heard this, many of us have heard this parable so many times, it's, it's lost its stunnability. Right? This is a stunning parable. When Jesus told it, his original audience would have, been, would have been shocked and stunned by it. It would have been like being hit with a stun gun. Um, it's so familiar to us that it probably doesn't have that effect anymore. Uh, but here's what Jesus says. I tell you that this man, who is this man? The tax collector. Rather than the other, the Pharisee. The pedophile. The most despised, lowest of, of, of all criminals in, in low life, not the righteous one, went home justified before God. 
Here we encounter the, what I would say is the key theological term in the text. Justified. The word that uh, the NIV translates justified. It means rendered or reckoned as righteous. Rendered or reckoned as righteous. So the lowest of lows, the sinner, the tax collector, who calls out for God's mercy, goes home rendered and reckoned as righteous. And the Pharisee, who's doing everything right, doesn't. What's up with that? Just about every religion in the world works around the idea of being good. If you do the good stuff, then you get right with God. Most people think that way. If you talk to the average person, say, who's going to get right with God? Who's going to get into heaven? They would say the people who do the good stuff. If you were to describe the Pharisee and describe the tax collector, say, who do you think is going to get into heaven? Who's going to be closer to God? The average person on the street would say, who? Well, the Pharisee. He's faithful to his wife. He doesn't cheat in his taxes. He, He doesn't go over the speed limit. He does everything right. Of course he's closer to God. But Jesus says, no. The guy who recognizes his sin and his rebellion and confesses it and cries out for mercy is the one who God renders and reckons as righteous. Many of us are familiar with uh, the passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul gives a similar theology. If you're not familiar with it, I'd like to draw your attention to it, or even if you are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is real simple stuff, I know. Forgive me for being so basic, but for it is by grace, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our, our good works, our righteousness, although they're pleasing to God, they don't save us. They don't justify us. They don't get us restored and right with God. Now, I know this is real simple and basic, but God created us to be in a close, intimate, personal, loving relationship. He wants intimacy with us. But we've rebelled against him. We don't like his leadership in our lives. We want to live life our own way. We've gone in our own direction and we separated ourselves from God. We've broken his rules and his laws. We put ourselves on the throne of our own lives. We want to do it our way. Oh, we might pay lip service to God. Occasionally we might go to church. We might even pray from now, you know, every now and then, especially if there's some big concern in our lives. But basically we're running life for ourselves. We're sinners. We're separated from God. We need to be justified. We need to be saved. We need to be restored to a right relationship with God. We need to be rendered righteous. How does that happen? I'm going to use an illustration that I use all the time at the jail, and I know it won't connect with you quite the way it does with the inmates. But I want you to pretend for a minute you're no longer in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You're in the great state of Texas. One of the differences between Texas and Massachusetts is in Texas, they have capital punishment. You are on death row. You've committed a capital crime. You are guilty. You have exhausted all of your appeals. The DNA evidence is overwhelming. You've done the crime. 
You're awaiting your execution, and it could be any day. Get that picture in your mind's eye? You hear footsteps coming down the corridor, and they stop in front of your cell, and an officer opens up the door, and he lets Jesus into your cell. Jesus walks in. He says, hi, I'm Jesus, and you shake hands. He's like, whoa. First thing he says is, take off your uniform. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I got nothing on underneath this uniform, Jesus. No, take off your uniform. Like, well, you're Jesus. Okay. So you take off your uniform. Jesus takes off his pure, perfect white robe, and he wraps it around you, puts it on you. And then he puts on your uniform. He then goes to the door and calls for the officer, and the officer comes down. And he looks at you and he says, go. And you're like, what? Go. Get out of here. So you go to the door, and the officer says, and down the corridor you walk. Through the sally port you go. Out through booking, free. And Jesus stays behind in the cell and takes the lethal injection that you have earned, that you deserve. I believe this is a picture, a small picture, not a perfect picture, but a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. In the parable, Jesus talks of justification through crying out for mercy. We know the rest of the story is that mercy is available to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. On the cross, Jesus Christ, who had lived a perfect life, free from sin, took upon himself all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our stupid decisions, all of the stupid things we ever said. The punishment, the penalty for that, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. I like to tell the inmates, you know what? The wrath of God is going to be poured out. God is a just God, and we don't talk about God's justice and his wrath much anymore in the church. God is a loving God, but he's also a just and holy God, and he hates sin, and his wrath is going to be poured out against sin. The only question is, will it be poured out on Jesus on your behalf, or will it be poured out on you? Those are the two choices. God's justice and holiness and wrath will be satisfied. But on the cross, it's been put upon Jesus. And if we cry out for his mercy, if we cry out to God and say, have mercy on me, I'm a miserable sinner, I've messed it up with sincerity. And sometimes with the inmates, that's difficult to discern. But if we do that, and we put our hope and our trust and our faith completely in what Jesus has done for us, righteousness is rendered and reckoned to us by God. Not because of our righteousness, but because of our admission of our sin and our guilt and our dependence on Jesus alone for our righteousness. The theological term is imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus gets credited to our moral account. And when we stand before God, he sees us as his son in the righteousness of Jesus. How cool is that? You know, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I, mean, I tell the inmates this all the time, you know what? Don't wait, because you don't know how much time you got. In the jail, that's true. There are these things called shanks. They make them out of just about anything. They're like knives, and people like try to hurt each other in there. And when you're in jail, your life is a little bit 
kind of in the balance. Most There's a lot of safety down there, and I feel safe. The officers do a great job. But there's some danger in that environment. And I tell the inmates, you don't know how much time you got. You know what? The most dangerous place for most of these inmates is when they get on on the street. Now, I tell the inmates, you know, God may have you here to save your life in here now and to save your life for eternity. Because if you were out on the street, you might be dead. And a lot of these guys will go, yeah, you're right. You're right. We had a juvenile inmate released last April. Two weeks after he was released, he was killed. It's not just an idea. It's true. But they understand the urgency of the gospel because they understand the fragility of life. There are very few inmates who don't know of people their own age who have died on the streets. So we don't have that same urgency, but if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, don't wait. Confess your sins. Call out for mercy. Put your hope, your trust, your faith completely in Jesus Christ. Not in your own righteousness. Your own righteousness will get you nowhere. Ask the Pharisee. Well, you know what? If you do put your faith in Jesus, a really cool thing happens. A lot of really cool, thing, cool things happen. But one I want to talk about this morning. God the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you. And starts this process we call sanctification. Where you begin, begin to be set apart and made holy for God. And if we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, we start to become more and more holy and more and more righteous. Is this a good thing? Yes, this is a very good thing. In fact, I tell the inmates, if we don't see any of this happening at all, one can question whether there's any sincerity in your profession of faith. If we truly put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus, if we're truly crying out to him for his mercy, and we're recognizing our sinfulness, then there should begin to be a change in how we live and the choices that we make. But as we start to become more holy... There's a danger. And what's that danger? The danger is we can become like the Pharisees. We can develop spiritual pride. Now, spiritual pride is an interesting thing. I think I'm going out in the limb here, but I think you can compare spiritual pride a little bit to alcoholism in that if you have it, you deny having it. At least for me, I can see other people's spiritual pride a mile away. It's really easy. But I can't see my own. It's a lot harder to see it in my own life. I think it's a splinter and log kind of a thing, but if that's not your experience, it's mine. But since it's my experience, I'm going to uh, give apologies to Jeff Foxworthy and bring you a list of you may be becoming a Pharisee if questions. This is done partly uh, humorously, and some of them, those who... Uh, who know me will see uh, the insideness of some of these because they certainly pertain to me. Um, partly for fun, but partly out of seriousness because you know what? It's insidious. You can start to become self-righteous and spiritually prideful without even knowing it. And you're living a good godly life. It's not that hard to become a Pharisee. In fact, I would argue once we come to faith and we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, it's harder not to become a Pharisee than to remain humble, which I believe is why Jesus has so much to say about the importance of humility. But we'll get there a little later. All right, here they are. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you sit in the front pew and clap so loudly that everybody knows you're enthusiastic about worship. Those of you that were around a while ago know what I'm talking about. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you park in the back of the parking lot. And you can't understand how other people can be so selfish as to take the, the closest places when they come to park. 
you may be becoming a Pharisee. If you put phylacteries on your car in the form of bumper stickers or little fish, and you can't understand why there's other people in your Bible study who still are driving unmarked cars. All right, you may be becoming a Pharisee if your zipper Bible cover is big enough to use as an overnight bag. And you can't understand how other Christians can come to church and not even bring their Bibles with them. Here's one that hits close to home. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you have ever thought that you know better than the elders. Ooh. That's a stab right there, but we won't go there. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you can't remember the last time you had a five-minute conversation with a person who smokes or has a tattoo on their neck. I can be a little self-righteous of that when I get All right. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you've ever tried to figure out what the church operating budget would be if everyone else were to obey God and to give their tithe. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you have Bible verses on your refrigerator and maybe even framed on your walls, but your lost neighbors have never read any of them. You may be becoming a Pharisee if you're thankful you're not like other people, like Unitarians. That's my heritage. Or Roman Catholics. Or Democrats. <laughs> to be an equal opportunity abuser. Or Republicans. Or people who live in Weymouth. Glad I'm not like them. Or people who live in Hingham. Glad I'm not like them. All right. Only a couple more here. You may be becoming a Pharisee if right now you're thinking, I sure am glad that the preacher is finally preaching a sermon against these Pharisees who I have to sit next to and worship every Sunday morning. <laughs> and lastly, you may be becoming a Pharisee if you are offended, maybe even a little bit upset, at even the insinuation that you might be a Pharisee. Who is this former youth pastor and who does he think he is? All right, well, quite seriously, we have a significant challenge before us as followers of Jesus. Those of us who have put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus and who are cooperating with the Holy Spirit and becoming sanctified and more holy, we have the challenge, as that happens in our life, of not only giving God the glory and the credit for it, which the Pharisee did, I might point out. He gave God the credit for it. He thanked God for it. We have the challenge of not only doing that, but not developing spiritual pride, staying humble. Staying humble. How do we stay humble? John Piper, a Christian hedonist, some of you have read Piper, I think he would say, you know what? The key here isn't to focus on obeying Jesus and trying to strive to be humble. The key here is to focus on what's greatest and best for us, wanting to be exalted. Wanting to be exalted. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and... That was about 50%. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and if we humble ourselves, God will raise us up. He'll exalt us. Don't we all want to be exalted by God? I know I do. If the key to that is humility, then I should seek humility not out of an obligation or a duty or poor me, I have to be humble, Jesus tells me to, but because I want to be raised up and exalted. So if we want to be raised up and exalted, what kind of things do we need to build into our lives to make sure that we don't develop Spiritual pride. And I've come up with three. They all start with S to help me remember them. I'm sure there are more. The first one, the first thing I think we need to do 
is we need to stand close to the cross. Stand close to the cross. Carl Henry, who was a theologian and a publisher, the first publisher of Christianity Today, when asked how he remained humble, I mean, the guy was a phenomenally successful person. He said, how could anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? If we're going to be exalted, we have to be humble. If we're going to be humble, we have to always be close to the cross. It's hard to be arrogant if you're remembering what Jesus has done for you. The second key, I believe, to staying humble is we need to serve the lowest. Serve the lowest. We don't become humble simply by praying for humility. We become humble by practicing humility. Now, right now, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of high school and college students preparing for their fall sports. I used to be an athlete a long time ago. If you want to get good at a sport, let's pick soccer because that's close to me. If you want to get good at soccer, you don't just pray to God to make you good at soccer. What do you do? You practice acts of soccer. You with me? I mean, this is simple. I'm sorry, but it's true. If you want to be good at soccer, you have to work hard at practicing the things that are necessary to do soccer. If you want to be humble so that you'll be exalted by God, you you must practice acts of humility. That's the only way you become humble. Find the lowest people you can and start to serve them. And you'll be amazed at the results. You'll experience humility. Serve the lowest. Another passage that's familiar to to most, but I'm going to turn there because it so ties into what we're talking about here, is Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us that our attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or hung on to tightly, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, Father, the word of the Lord. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and... All right, so we need to stand close to the cross. We need to serve the lowest. And finally... I would argue we need to speak the gospel. We need to speak the gospel. We need to speak it to ourselves, remind ourselves of how we've been justified and rendered as righteous with God. We need to speak it with one another and celebrate it. But if we want to remain humble, all we have to do is speak the gospel to the lost. I should be seeing heads going like this. If you've tried to share the good news of Jesus with lost people in this part of the country, you won't only be humble, you'll probably be humiliated. If you don't feel confident enough in your understanding and knowledge of the scriptures to to share the gospel, 
Start at a lower level. Simply share that you believe in a creator and you don't believe in macroevolution. That'll be enough. You will experience humility. In fact, I believe that one of the reasons we don't share the gospel is because we don't want to be humbled and humiliated. That's what keeps us and prevents us from sharing the good news of Jesus. At least I can speak for myself on that one. All right, so stand close to the cross. Serve the lowest. Speak the gospel. There's one last issue that I want to address, and uh, I'm a little reluctant because I'm not sure I'm an insider any longer, and this is an issue that needs to be addressed by an insider, not an outsider. But I'm going to give you, those of you that don't know me, I'm going to give you my resume as to why I consider myself still an insider at Southshire Baptist Church. Um, I'm still a member. I'm a missionary of the church. My wife continues to worship here every other week, alternating between Beechwood and South Shore. She'll be coming to the 11, or at least she promised she would. My son continues to go to Sunday school here and plans to go to the youth group in the, in the fall. Um, I have a ton of people I consider my closest friends sitting in the pews. Um, I still believe that this is my church. and I'm still very proud. I'm very proud of having served on the, the staff here. I'm proud to call the people here my friends. And um, for that reason, I'm going to consider myself an insider. If you consider me an outsider, oh, well, suck it up, because I'm going there anyway. (laughs) And that won't surprise anybody that knows me. (laughs) In addition to individual pride, spiritual pride, there's another thing that can happen. And it happened to the Israelites. Corporate spiritual pride. Where as a body, you start to think of yourselves as better than others. Now, I'm not saying that's happened here at South Shore Baptist. But I want to offer a caution as I see what's going on behind me out here. Because in our country, bigger is better, right? Bigger is better. So it's, it's, I praise God that this church is growing, not just wider and broader, but deeper as well. And I praise God that there can be a new facility where more people can hear the gospel and more people can worship God. It's a great thing. But any time we're successful, there's a danger of pride. If you're not successful, humility is pretty easy. It's not hard being humble at Beechwood. Now, when 25 or 30 people show up for worship, it's pretty easy to keep your spiritual humility. But when you start to be successful, not just numerically, But this is a very successful church, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud that I was ordained here. I'm proud that I got to serve here. This church has a wonderful missions budget. It always has. It's got a phenomenal staff. If you don't appreciate your staff, get to know them. Don't take them for granted. This is an average. Amazingly gifted individual serving. You've got a senior pastor who most of you recognize uh, his his abilities and his gifts. Uh, You have only male elders, which is unusual. There's all kinds of things that set Sasha Baptist apart as a really good church. And it's really good to go before God and to thank God for these good things. It's great. Go God and say, thank you, God, for what a great church Sasha Baptist is, and then I can be part of this body. But stop there. Don't go the next step. And I'm guilty of going the next step. The next step is, I thank you, Lord, that it's Sasha Baptist. We believe in Salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Not like those Roman Catholics. Or I say, thank God that we have the priority of preaching in our service. None of that drama and and fluffy stuff like that church over there. 
For I thank God that we only have godly male elders, unlike those churches. There's a big difference. If we thank God and stop there, we can be humble and just grateful. But if we feel the need to compare ourselves and see ourselves as superior to the others, you know what we've become? We've become a bunch of Pharisees. And the temptation to go there is really strong, and we won't get into spiritual warfare, but there is an enemy who wants to take us down that road. Satan's crushed that this church is building because he doesn't want a bigger sanctuary where more people will worship God. But if he can spin it around and use it to make us prideful, he'll be happy. A sanctuary full of Pharisees is a much smaller threat to the devil than a small little congregation coming humbly before the Lord. All right, well, I want to end with seven so what questions. This is something I do at Beachwood every Sunday. When I'm done preaching, I, uh, I ask the question, so what? We've looked at the scriptures and we've talked about it. I have the wrong piece of paper here. We won't go through this one again. I want to uh, ask some questions in response uh, to what we've heard this morning. The first four I've taken from Sasha Baptist Church's baptismal vow. And um, they should sound familiar. Question number one. Do you confess that you are a sinner by birth and by choice? That you are totally unable to save yourself and that you deserve God's righteous judgment because of your sins? Question number two. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified as a sacrifice for your sins, was buried dead, buried, and rose again on the third day. Question number three, do you give up every hope of earning God's approval, whether by goodness or by religion? And do you put your hope in Jesus Christ alone, who lived and died in your place? And the fourth and final question borrowed from the baptismal vow, do you confess that Jesus is Lord and with God's help, you serve, excuse me, love, serve, and obey him all the days of your life. I want to add to those four questions, three of my own. Question number five, on a scale from one to ten, rate your proximity to the cross. Rate your current proximity to the cross. Number six, who is the lowest person with whom you have any contact? How can you serve that person this week? Let me rephrase that. How will you serve that person this week? And finally, question number seven. To whom will you speak the good news of Jesus Christ?